This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this is Eric Weaver, and I wanted to tell you about the North Star for Value. What is that exactly? Well, it's making sure that not only do we have improvement in costs, but we have improvement in outcomes for everyone. We must eliminate disparities across race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. The Institute for Advancing Health Value is bringing to you a virtual summit for leaders advancing health equity through value-based care. On November 30th, we're going to be screening the Color of Care documentary, which is uh, an important documentary that really shows the systemic issues we have in our society. And then on December 1st, we're going to have a full day of discussions that are really centered around how do we create health equity in our country This is Daniel Chipping, and we, the Institute, are so excited to bring this great event to you. We've got an incredible lineup of speakers, including Dr. Dora Hughes, the Chief Medical Officer of CMMI, Anish Chopra, the former U.S. Chief Technology Officer, and Dr. Olaywila, the Chief Health Equity Officer at Humana. We're going to be covering topics that span everything that you need to know about health equity and value-based care, including gender-affirming care. AI, data solutions, and so much more. And we really hope to see you there. And Don't miss out on this important event, Population Health Equity, the North Star for Value, a free virtual summit with everything that you need to know to advance health equity in your organization. Go to the link in the summary of this week's episode to learn more and register for this upcoming event. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Peter Angood from the American Association of Physician Leadership, the AAPL. Dr. Angood has been leading that organization as their CEO and president since 2011. He is someone that's provided senior executive leadership for all sizes and types of healthcare organizations throughout his career. The AAPL is an association that's focused on maximizing the potential of physician-led interprofessional leadership to create personal and organizational transformation that benefits patient outcomes, improves workforce wellness, and refines the delivery of healthcare internationally. Since their inception 50 years ago, the AAPL remains the only healthcare organization out there that's providing full-service professional opportunities like information, intelligence, 
leadership education, training around physician workforce leadership training. You know, this is a, an organization, Daniel, that trains thousands of physicians annually, and their membership is in 35 countries. I was really impressed with our conversation. I hope you uh, felt the same as well. Definitely, Eric. I think our listeners will appreciate today's conversation with Dr. Ann Good. You know, his research interests have addressed leading edge problems. He's authored over 230 publications of varying types, well-recognized international speaker on a host of issues related to physician leadership. His recent book, All Physicians Are Leaders, Reflections on Inspiring Change Together for Better Healthcare, has been well-received. Dr. Angud is often noted on Modern Healthcare's annual list of 150 most influential clinical executives. Eric, I think our listeners are in for a treat. If you're a physician or you work with a physician, which is most of you, then you're going to appreciate Dr. Angud's take on leadership, burnout, employment trends, technology, multirational workforce. We cover a host of uh, great conversations and have lots of fantastic insights to share. Well, we hope you enjoy this episode. And if you did, please remember to go to Apple Podcasts. We'd love to get a five-star rating and a good review. Please subscribe to our newsletter. And without any further delay, let's go ahead and hear from the man himself, Dr. Peter Angood, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Angood, welcome to the Race to Value. It's incredible to have you on the show this week. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Well, I am too. And I thought we would start our conversation today by talking about the changing definition of value-based care. In its most simplistic terms, value in healthcare is often depicted by an equation, which is quality outcomes plus patient experience divided by healthcare cost. And this is analogous to the IHI triple aim goals of improving individual experience of care, improving health of populations, and reducing the per capita cost of care. But over the last few years, we've heard about the quadruple aim, which adds an additional dimension for improved clinical experience. And the idea is that without improved clinical experience on the provider side, the three other patient-centric aspects won't reach their full potential. And if that wasn't enough, we also have the value equation changing as well with regard to health equity. With you know, Now we're seeing the CMS Innovation Center really thinking long and hard about how to embed health equity in every aspect of value-based payment models to increase focus on underserved populations. And we're now seeing that added to the numerator of the value equation. And while these are often academic constructs to some degree, I, I do think it's important that we all agree on the common definition for value-based care, especially since there's so much confusion often about what we're talking about, especially with patients. The language that we often use an industry to define value-based care often doesn't resonate. I mean, patients equate value to happy meals and they don't really understand what it means to be accountable for outcomes with greater care coordination. So Dr. Angud, what is your perspective on how we should define value-based care so it's readily understood by everyone, including patients? Yeah, it is complicated, absolutely. I always take it back even more simplistically to value essentially equals quality over cost, but the value can be viewed from a whole variety of different constituents, whether it's the patients, the family, the providers, the institutions, the payers, et cetera. And then equally so, quality can have a variety of definitions depending on the constituent, as does cost. And cost doesn't always equate to financial dollars. It can be cost to personal time, cost to 
impact on professional pursuits, all of those types of things. So as we talk about value, I think really where we have to stay centered and stay focused on is at the end of the day, what does it provide value for the patients that are being cared for in the system? And you're right. You're right. The patients don't always understand even what value means for them. Patients usually don't show up until they're uh, ill. And so their main focus at that point in time is relieve me of my emotional burden of being sick and then relieve me of the physical burden of being ill. And after that, I'll get happy again. And if their expectations are met, then there's high value. But then they have to deal with the financial aspects and the other burdens. But I also say in here, however, one of the most disruptive innovations in healthcare these days is what we term patient-centered or person-centered care. And it's disruptive because we don't really truly know how to do it well. We talk about it, we aspire to it, but in terms of the complexity of this industry, delivering true person-centered care and providing high quality value in that care is still very difficult for us to achieve. Dr. Anger, the need for physician leaders has never been greater. As the healthcare industry continues to undergo significant changes in the movement to value-based care, there's a clear opportunity for physicians with extensive administrative experience to rise up and assume leadership positions that are oftentimes filled by executives who don't have any medical training at all. In the emerging health value economy, a physician leader needs to have both medical expertise and the business acumen to succeed. And from providing frontline care to fulfilling leadership positions, physicians are responsible for 75 to 85% of all quality and cost decisions, including the selection of drugs, devices used to treat patients, and specialty referrals. And their leadership beyond the practice domain is critical to ensure transparency regarding cost data and clinical outcomes. Non-clinical administrators trying to communicate clinical outcomes have a very difficult time since they don't understand the drivers of physician decision-making, and, and they can't present evidence that emphasizes clinical as well as financial outcomes. Can you describe how value-based care will impact the leadership roles that physicians need to play? And how does this leadership responsibility to ensure value-related outcomes extend between formal responsibilities associated with titles and roles? It's interesting, you just said, the majority of healthcare delivery is still pretty much driven by that patient-physician relationship. Yes, we have other types of providers, nurses, pharmacists, PAs, nurse practitioners, and a whole host of other allied health professionals. And yet the majority of care is driven by that patient-physician relationship. And so with that as one piece, and then the history of the reliance on the medical profession by the industry to sort of be the dominant uh, direction setter for what constitutes good care, good quality care, there is this ongoing need for leadership to understand where the medical profession is coming from. Now, the paradox in all of this is the medical profession does not provide physicians with adequate training or experience in leadership or management. The vast majority of medical schools still don't provide anything in their curriculum related to leadership or management. Uh, residency training programs uh, equally just don't have time in the training programs to provide that exposure. 
And so you get early career physicians coming out of their training and wondering, how is it that I can engage with trying to create some improvements or some changes in the systems where I'm practicing? And so they, they need oftentimes added educational experiences. They certainly need added administrative exposures and experiences in order to get a better sense of what the administrative tasks are that are able to then translate into successful change processes. Now, the non-clinical administrators and leaders and managers out there, uh, let's not forget, they've gone through fairly extensive education themselves. They've got their undergrad degrees, and many have their master's degrees, and they are specialists in healthcare delivery. But as you just described, they don't have that same degree of insight, not only on the science of what true patient care delivery is, but the methodology of what's truly effective uh, patient care delivery and the nuances of that patient-physician relationship, which is so critically important here. So non-clinical administrators can do a pretty darn good job the majority of the time, but other clinical leaders, whether again, it's physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and others, with their perspective on what patient delivery is all about, they have the added benefit once they've been exposed to some leadership and management education and experiences, they have the added benefit of being able to provide better outcomes overall. There is some work out there that shows and demonstrates uh, when physicians are the CEO of an organization, the outcomes on quality are 25 to 33% better. And it's certainly understood that it's because those physicians as CEOs not only understand what true high quality value-based patient care delivery is all about, but they then also understand the uh, ways in which to create the systems and processes to deliver that type of care. You know, it's interesting every year, there's a variety of surveys out there that rank hospital delivery and hospital performance and safety, et cetera. Um, one of the more notorious ones is uh, U.S. News and World Report, and every year they publish the honor roll, which has 18 to 20 hospitals who are the highest performing in the industry here in the States. Every year, the vast majority of those places listed are run by CEOs who are physicians. And that sort of, I think, in my mind, underscores what we've been saying here. When you've got clinically oriented, well-trained, and experienced leaders, then those healthcare delivery systems tend to perform better overall. Again, not being demeaning to the non-clinical administrators, they just don't quite have the same advantage. Now, the last comment I'll make in terms of your question is the education track for physicians is long and physicians aren't getting into their leadership roles until they're 40, 45, and then, you know, they need to get more experience. So it's not uncommon that uh, it's during the 40s and 50s where physician leadership really comes on its best. Now, put that in comparison to someone who early in their um, education decides they want to go into healthcare, they do their undergrad, they do their master's, and they're hitting the workforce by the time they're 25. And so from the age of 25 to 40, 45, there's 15, 20 years of added experience that those people have 
that are then coming up and dealing with physicians who are just getting started in their leadership journey oftentimes. So there's this kind of mutual respect that needs to be developed from the non-clinical administrators. They need to appreciate that the physicians have this 15, 20 years of clinical experience that they don't have. But likewise, the clinical or physician leaders need to recognize that more often than not, the non-clinical leaders they're dealing with have 15 to 20 years even sometimes of administrative experience that they don't have. And they speak different languages. So that mutual respect and learning how to work together and leverage in each other's experiences and backgrounds uh, is what really helps to drive a system even better yet. Dr. Angood, you and I recently connected, and I remember having a great conversation about the slow pace of the value movement. I mean, there's been years and years of experimentation, conjoling, designing of incentives, and we have these value-based payment models now, and those that are tied to patient outcomes and spending targets that are now past the early stages of infancy, like the ACO program that seems to be gaining more and more traction. However, we're still seeing things move at a glacial pace. I mean, we've had more than a decade now since the Medicare Innovation Center was formed to accelerate the deployment of value-based payment. And we've had two decades of employers asking their TPAs to implement real risk contracts with providers, but we're far from reaching a critical mass. And when you step back and zoom out and look at the whole delivery landscape, at least what I see is, you know, a vast majority of healthcare systems are not fully invested in value. I mean, if you look at where the capitation engine is driving from, it's the startups out there that are solely focused on capitation, groups like Oak Street, ChinMed, One Medical in Iora, et cetera. But there's also this longstanding demonstration of value on the West Coast with exemplars like Heritage Provider Network and Kaiser Permanente and other groups in California. But fundamentally, we haven't seen any of these companies scale at a national level, you know, due to the nuanced challenges in local markets and industry headwinds to value adoption, you know, due to that fee-for-service enslavement. So as a prominent voice in the physician leadership community, can you provide your perspective on why we're so slow to move to value-based care? And for those organizations that have embraced the movement and leaned in to undergo significant transformation, what models have you seen work well? Yeah, you know, it's uh, well over a decade that uh, we've been talking about this value-based type of healthcare delivery. And healthcare is an incredibly complex industry overall. Uh, some would argue, and I, I, I stay on this side of it, that it's probably the most complex industry. And certainly in this country, where we've got this complicated uh, payment structure, it makes the industry even more difficult to manage and to create change in. The value model sounds good on paper, but we have to work through this period where we're trying to transition from the so-called volume-based uh, initiatives to the value-based initiatives. And we, you're absolutely right. We don't have enough successful models out there that have consistently shown a sustained improvement over time. And in fact, I, I've become aware of several practices who try to embrace a value strategy and they put in nice models and they, they try to get their 
reimbursement uh, relationships and negotiations in good places with the payer community. And then they go ahead and implement only to fail in about two years time because they are not able to sustain the finances of delivering that, that value type of practice. And so, you know, we've got, uh, again, this difficult industry where currently now we're approaching 4.5 trillion as an industry. You've got about 16 or 17 different sectors in this $4.5 trillion industry. And most of those companies in those various sectors are really just focused in on what is it that they can benefit and profit from in this $4.5 trillion economy? And they're not necessarily thinking about what's best for patients, what's best for patient care, and how do we improve the systems of delivery? Uh, the the for-profit insurers, you know, they continue to have to follow their um, shareholders and to deliver profit margins. And so we've continued to see improvements in the profits for those for-profit payers. The uh, federal system is slow moving. We continue to have a, this plethora of models and projects that are out there that CMMI or CMS puts into place. And yet again, in each of those models, we don't have enough history of a sustained improvement uh, over time. So where's the incentive for other institutions or practices to try and take on a true value-based approach when they know what pays the dollars is the volume-based uh, reimbursement strategies? I just saw some stats come out in the last couple of days. Not-for-profit hospitals in this uh, last year or so have seen a nearly 20% drop in cash on hand. They are also dealing with margins that are down in that 1% or even negative 1%, 2% range. So how do you go ahead and provide innovative practices when you are still just struggling to keep the doors open, let alone trying to create new models of care, put risk in, into the equation, and then try to encourage your providers, both the clinical providers and the non-clinical staff, to support a model that's high risk. So is there a way out of all of this? I think perhaps in time, but I think we need to see a little bit more substance continuing in a direction provided by CMS and CMMI that sustains itself and don't give us this 50 or 60 different models. And then it would, wouldn't it be terrific if we really did get a much better commitment from the for-profit insurers to really drive the model towards value-based care so that both the delivery system as well as the insurance system both uh, succeed. Now, you're absolutely right. Some of the groups that have shown some periods of success, they have not been able to expand it out. And even in, when you look at some of the financial reporting on some of those examples that you gave earlier, including Kaiser, they at times lose an awful lot of money as they try to keep their own doors open. So, uh, you know, there's no panacea. There's no perfect solution out there as yet. Dr. Angood, in recognition of the quadruple aim where we started this conversation, it's really important to understand 
the attitudes and feelings of doctors and the, how they bear directly on the way that they treat patients. With this in mind, it's disheartening oftentimes to realize that the doctors are paying a steep price for practicing medicine by compromising their mental health. And based on national studies, we've seen the doctors are twice as likely to take their own lives as the general population is. And roughly 15% of physicians struggle with depression, 20% report having had suicidal thoughts. And it's been projected that burnout is affecting over half the physicians in practice. And a recent Harvard report even called burnout, quote, a public health crisis that urgently demands action, end quote. Some physicians are even going as far as to say the profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient in describing the pain they feel when the system prevents them from doing what's right, thereby forcing them to inflict harm on patients, where physicians themselves experience this as a form of injury. How do you think we should address this issue of physician burnout and moral injury to ensure it will not further erode the mental health of doctors and radically undermine patient care? Given that too many bureaucratic tasks like filling out insurance forms and obtaining prior authorizations have oftentimes been identified by physicians as the main cause, what role can value-based care play in improving this situation? Yeah, thank you for that question, and thanks for bringing that topic forward. You know, as I mentioned earlier, healthcare is an incredibly complex industry, and Let's be clear, you know, it's not just the physicians that are exhibiting uh, the signs of burnout and uh, suicidality. It's it's happening in all of the workforce inside of healthcare, and it's happening actually inside of the non-clinical administrators of healthcare as well. I think the pandemic has done us all a favor by helping everyone recognize that the issues of uh, an inadequate uh, wellness strategy for the workforce in healthcare is present. Uh, the rates of burnout and suicidality, as you described, are, are high. But those have been going on for some time. Those of us that have been in practice for any number of years uh, have recognized that we've had peers that have uh, been worn out, uh, burnt out, suicidal, getting caught up in ad addiction behaviors and all those types of things. And so... Uh, it's come to the forefront, and absolutely, we need to begin to address it in different sorts of ways other than just saying, hey, it happens. Part of the difficulties here in my way of thinking is for the individuals who want to uh, help others, they choose healthcare as their chosen profession. And they're often idealistic individuals, altruistic individuals, and obviously very caring in their approach as they want to help others. And so they enter these professions and physicians, it's, it's well recognized in the medical student population. You know, the first one and two years, their idealism persists. But as they begin to get exposed to the clinical environment, their idealism erodes very rapidly. And by the time students are graduating, they themselves as students are already exhibiting high rates of uh, depression, suicidality, burnout, et cetera. So they're, they're not getting off to a good start. Now, as I said earlier, the education track for physicians is long and therefore the financial debt load is high. The average, depending on which numbers you read, the average debt load of someone uh, completing their training is in and around the quarter million to $300,000. Uh, 
it's the stage of life when people are often trying to form their long-term relationships. They're trying to decide what types of homes to purchase. They're trying to raise kids and they're trying to get their careers off. So there's a whole host of different things that are happening at early career stage that are contributing to a disappointment in how do they manage the expectations of what they wanted out of their career. Now, those who are in the career and mid-career, you know, they've seen significant shifts in how more uh, complicated the industry has become. And so while they may have enjoyed a, a well-balanced practice with a reasonable income, all of a sudden they're seeing decreasing compensation, increasing work pro productivity pressures, and decreased personal time. And so they get frustrated uh, with the changes that are occurring in their own professional and personal lives. So those rates should not exist. Those rates just should not exist. And what do we do? You know, you ask the question in the context of value-based care. Well, I think if we can work through some of the uh, ways in which we can begin to better implement value-based care, where the value as we talked earlier, is based from the patient's perspective, from the provider's perspective, and from the various other sectors' perspectives in the industry. But the real driver is that patient-physician relationship. So if you can keep the physicians satisfied and the patient satisfied through a better balanced value strategy, then you're going to have beneficial effects throughout all the other sectors. It's, it's well recognized in any kind of industry that you know your business model works well when you focus on quality and value. Everything else comes back into place when you just stay focused on quality and value. So we need to do more of that in healthcare. Now, there's three different parts to, the, to how do we move forward here. One is for those who are burnt out, we really need to help them. We really need to provide them the support the services and the assistance. And that includes allowing those who are burnt out to be able to state they are burnt out. It's well recognized that physicians will be very hesitant to admit that they have any sort of symptoms because they are afraid what their peers will think, they're afraid of what their patients will think, and they're afraid what their practice will, uh, the impacts on their practice uh, because of being exposed. So we have to be able to help those who have the need to get better care. Secondly, the systems where physicians are working in clearly need ongoing improvements in their processes and the focus on the outcomes. And that takes time. And as I said earlier, you know, the resources available, given the thin margins and low uh, finances for many institutions, it gets difficult to improve your processes and increase the changes that are needed. But the non-clinical administrators need to tackle that from the perspective of what can we do for improving the wellness of the workforce in healthcare, not just physicians, but the overall workforce. So there's got to be concerted efforts to do systems and process change. And then the third piece is then getting the physicians engaged in that process of improvement and helping their physicians provide the institutions and practices their perspective on what constitutes better value for care delivery, better value for the patients, and better value for the workforce. 
at the same time as you get the physicians involved, you help the physicians understand better that change takes a long time. And so they are able to readjust their expectations while they engage in the change process. So they're not expecting the change to occur next month, but the change may occur over the next year to two years on whatever system they're looking at. So that helps provide context and added perspective to the physicians on how to uh, help create positive change. And then that helps them control their expectations on a personal level and help themselves get less worn out, burnt out, anxious, et cetera. And that peer-to-peer -peer networking in those types of environments are very valuable because then everybody starts to take on more of a team-based approach. Hey, we're all in this together. It kind of sucks at times, but we're making change and we're helping each other to make that change. Well, Dr. Angad, I appreciate your comments on workforce burnout and yeah, you know, in my mind, this is one of the biggest issues that we have right now facing our industry. And you mentioned how hospitals are, are struggling financially right now. And we see that happening uh, mostly due to uh, current cost and labor structures where, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we've seen an 8% increase in clinical labor costs per patient. And, you know, this is amounting to uh, an additional $17 million in spend on a, you know, with a normal 500 bed hospital. And I wanted to get into more of the aspects of kind of the physician side of the burnout equation, because uh, physicians are the, the, the highest cost resource in the uh, clinical uh, care delivery model. And, you know, the way I'm seeing it, since burnout is such a key driver of turnover, we have to do something to invest in uh, systems and cultures of care that can ameliorate, you know, this issue and and uh, create a a better way to retain and and uh, engage physicians meaningfully. There was a study that came out that I was looking at that came out last December that found that seventy three percent of physicians reported feeling overworked, and fifty percent of of physicians are considering a career change and. The study also identified a spike in retirements during the first few months of the pandemic that has never been fully recovered, uh, resulting in a roughly 1% of the entire physician workforce retiring earlier than expected based on pre-pandemic trends. And, you know, the cost to replace a physician is upwards of a million dollars, and that's going to be a major financial stressor for health systems, especially when coupled with known challenges such as the changing healthcare landscape, declining in patient volumes, the fact that, you know, it's become impossible to overcome the pandemic and some of the, the, the lingering effects there, you know, there's workforce shortages, supply chain disruptions, and many feel that long-term structural changes are going to be needed right now to maybe even, you know, think about how do we rely on non-physician providers more and, you know, and also maybe AI-based automation and decision-making assistance in the clinical setting. So I wanted to ask you, you know, just with all of that said, you know, thinking about burnout and, and how do we retain physicians, for those healthcare executives out there that are grappling with this issue of burnout in, in their workforce and all these other related cost structure issues, what should they be thinking about in terms of investment in their physicians to retain them? And if we do experience this great resignation in the physician workforce with this mass exodus of baby boomer physicians, you know, what's going to be the impact on care delivery? Right. And as I am aware, the 
CEOs, when they list out their top one, two, three sort of issues of concern, obviously finances are a big part of it, but what's right up there these days is the workforce wellness. And it's not just the wellness, but it's the retention of the workforce and how to continue with augmenting improvements to the workforce's well-being and satisfaction in the environment where they're supposed to be working. Uh, the statistics are always overwhelming and they're, they're quite frustrating and scary, aren't they? And you're absolutely right. Somewhere around a million dollars plus minus if you lose a physician is what that cost is. And then the recruitment strategies to replace an effective physician, get them onboarded and get them productive is, is very uh, difficult all, in, all, all by itself. And there's no doubt the pandemic has brought all of this to, to light. And again, it's the physicians, it's the non-physicians, uh, clinical providers as well. That patient-physician relationship is the driver, as we've said a couple of times. And so it's critically important for uh, healthcare administrators and healthcare executives to pay attention to how to keep the physician workforce better balanced. Now, one of the trends that are out there is uh, employment of physicians. And that's occurring for a couple of reasons. On the administration of a hospital or healthcare delivery system, it's appealing to get physicians employed because then you've got more capability of getting them engaged in your environment, getting them into leadership roles, and to get them integrated into all of the processes. So they're not behaving independently and autonomously separate from your institution. But that comes at a cost. You, you need to be able to provide adequate uh, compensation, adequate benefits. If you're going to get them administratively involved, physicians need appropriate amounts of time and to do the administrative work. And there needs to be this development of mutual respect in understanding where the benefits of each other are. Unfortunately, for many of these institutions that are employing physicians, uh, they put incredible patient productivity pressure on them. You know, we're paying you X amount of dollars for compensation. You've got to cover your costs for that compensation and benefits. And then we really need you to be generating much more in the way of productivity over and above those core uh, fixed costs that you incur as a physician employer employee. So trying to find the right balance of what's the expectation of number of hours of clinical time versus number of hours of non-clinical time is critically important for these uh, administrators and executives to take on. From the physician side, if you're going to enter into an employment model, you need to understand why you're even thinking about it. And depending on which stat you look at, it's anywhere from 50 to 70% of, of physicians are employed in some fashion, whether it's their group or whether it's a hospital or it's a delivery system. And for a period, there was a kind of a reflex there of, oh, well, let me, you know, take this job and shove it. I'm going to go get employed. That way I'll have less work hours. I'll have a more stable income. I'll have a better work-life balance. And theoretically, they'll pay attention to me and respect me. However, that doesn't always work out either. And so if physicians are going to want to become employed, they really need to think through how they negotiate the arrangements of their employment. 
and make sure that they're comfortable with the hours of expected clinical time, the productivity time in those hours of clinical exposure, and then making sure there's adequate time to do the non-clinical work, whether it's committee work or hitting up a department or doing other administrative chores. So, you know, the employment strategy is critically important. The workforce wellness piece, employment doesn't guarantee that you're going to be happy and, and involved in the organization. There are some studies that are coming out that, you know, the, the one thing that seems to bother in physicians about being employed is a lack of respect, a lack of ability to help uh, make decisions, a lack of ability to create some positive change in systems improvement, et cetera. And so that contributes back to a sense of discomfort and uh, potential anxiety and burnout. So we may see a, a pendulum shift back away from the employment model, but uh, I think regardless of the employment model or a non-employed model and you know a tr traditional medical staff model, institutions need to think about patients again. And what's optimal for patients? And patients would prefer to be treated outside of hospitals most of the time. So that ongoing trend that's occurring of you know, surgical procedures being done as outpatients, other types of care being done as outpatients, whether it's dialysis or oncology, chemotherapy, or the radiotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. That trend is an important one. And so that allows for both the physicians as well as for uh, health system administrators to think in innovative ways of getting back to that value equation. What's the best value for the patient? What's the best value for the physician? And what's the best value for our institution that's delivering care? And how can we do it in a profitable way so that we can continue to improve? We can't tolerate the ongoing exodus of employees and physicians out of the workforce. You know, it's going to put the industry at risk and the value is going to continue to uh, get eroded if we don't pay attention to the workforce. So the onus is there clearly, it's a mandate almost, that the workforce wellness really needs to be addressed. And it's far more than just saying, hey, be more resilient and you'll get over it. So there's, there's lots of work to be done. I think there needs to be more models of um, innovation tried at different institutions that are low cost, but then as those models are shown to be successful to make sure the rest of the industry learns about it as quickly as possible. I'd like to just follow up on this and, and keep on this topic for a minute and ask you about the current trends that you mentioned. We're seeing, you said 70% of doctors are employed and you know there's hospitals, private equity firms, and insurance companies employing these physicians. And conversely, only 30% are independent and about 20 years ago in 2000, it was quite different. There were 57% who were independent. And so, you know, that was more than half the doctors in America independent 20 years ago. And this loss of physician independence somewhat limits value-based care effectiveness. And in many situations, employing physicians is like putting fee-for-service on steroids. And the data shows this by, by showing that physician-led ACOs outperform their system ACO counterparts by a significant margin. 
And we're seeing research now that confirms that provider consolidation drives up healthcare costs. And when hospitals increase market share through physician practice acquisition, they can control referrals and demand higher prices, and, and which in turn makes premiums and costs for everyone higher. I'd just like to hear your additional thoughts on this trend towards physician employment. And, and do you think that it's going to continue or are physicians going to continue to compromise autonomy by going into an employed model? Have we seen the kind of the culmination of that? What are your thoughts on, on the next steps where this goes? Again, with the complexity of the industry, there's, there's going to be ongoing flux and change. Uh, I think if all sectors continue to recognize the importance of that patient-physician relationship, that that's a kind of a beacon of direction that we should all follow. But you're right. There's still a lot of merger and acquisition going on in this industry at the institutional level, as well as at the physician practice level. Uh, private equity is continuing to come in. Venture capital is continuing to come in with increased funding because they see opportunity for change. You've got some of these other large for-profit types of entities, uh, CBS Health and others who are coming in and recognizing that there's terrific opportunity to make money here. They all say it's because we want to provide better patient care, but at the end of the day, it's coming back to that $4.5 trillion pot and trying to get as much of that pot as they can in order to grow their businesses. So that trend of having physicians employed is a part of that kind of strategy. If you can get the physicians in, get them uh, bringing their practices, get them to bring their peers and their partners in, then there's better generation of uh, revenue for whatever institution they become employed by. So, you know, there's going to be a need for ongoing oversight for the trends of how these different for-profit strategies uh, continue. Now, how long is this employment trend going to last? I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. I actually was just having a conversation yesterday with a, a group in the Midwest who were successful in standing up their own physician-financed, physician-built uh, multi-specialty group and did that separate from the hospital and uh, are doing most all of their patient care in an outpatient setting. And they're hugely successful right now, hugely successful. And so I think we will probably begin to see other examples around the country where, you know, those uh, physicians, the 30% of physicians who aren't employed, gaining more success as they figure out the ways in which to provide good patient care, but also get good reimbursement and support their business models. And as those become recognized by the employed physicians, and if the institutions who are employing physicians don't get it right and keep their physicians happy and satisfied and engaged, you're gonna see a reverse migration of physicians out of those employment models and to begin trying to set up the, those physician-owned, physician-driven practices that are looking after patients in a predominant outpatient setting. Is that going to happen in the next two years? No, and this is a five to 10-year trend that we'll probably see. 
we'll always wind up with uh, a certain percentage of the healthcare delivery being run by hospitals and healthcare delivery systems. Uh, but I think the proportions of that, which are being done by physician-owned systems, uh, will begin to increase again over this next decade or so. Where private equity, the M&A activity, and other large for-profit entities like CVS Health uh, settle into all of this, that remains to be seen. It's fascinating to me, you know, that Microsoft, Google, Facebook, other large organizations have not gotten into healthcare in a meaningful way, nor have they figured it out. And obviously in healthcare, a big part of, uh, <clears throat> of the industry is just managing the data and making decisions on the data. So that tells you right there, there's a complexity to this industry that others haven't figured out yet. Well, as we think about the complexity of the decisions that we need to make and having uh, that data enablement, I can't help but think about where technology intersects with physician leadership and value transformation. Um, we've seen now that you know there's an opportunity to build digital care networks and help patients connect with community-based organizations and address social determinants like food insecurity, housing, transportation mental health issues and underserved populations. I mean, we're seeing risk-bearing entities out there that are using technology in the kind of the care coordination area and also patient engagement uh, technologies to enhance analytical insights that can lower unnecessary care utilization across the continuum. During the pandemic, we of course saw an explosion of telehealth activity that seemed to have made some impact in changing consumer expectations for virtual care. But you know, we saw like where telehealth utilization, it was 69% of doctor patient visits during the pandemic, but now it's resettled into more of a pre-pandemic norm. So, you know, all that said, you know, I'm just, as we think about the role of technology, I'd love to get your take on how it's going to impact the future of medical practice. And, and also wanted to see if you could provide your perspective on some of the recent trends that we've seen in virtual care delivery. Well, healthcare loves technology. And, um, you know, physicians as a whole, for uh, as long as physicians have been doing what they do, have been innovative and creative and providing new inventions in healthcare for eons. And uh, physicians uh, continue to want to have improvements in how care is delivered. And so there's a fair number of uh, physician-led innovation companies out there that have, you know, whether it's... Uh, devices or different types of molecules that are part of uh, you know, pharmaceuticals or whether it's gene and genetic therapy related. There's many, many good examples of that. So that, that's one side of the technology, right? Devices and pharmaceuticals and, and medications and all that sort of thing. The interesting thing as um, we think about technology is there's often a variety of non-clinical uh, innovators and inventors who, who again, see that large trillion dollar industry and may or may not have a personal story that drives them to want to innovate something in healthcare. And so there's a regular flow of device or now uh, different apps and applications and software programs that are oriented towards the healthcare space, and yet they think they're going to make their money by bringing this nice device of some sort 
into the industry, but they don't understand the industry. They don't understand patient care. They don't understand physician behavior. And yet somehow, you know, if they slap a device on you, you're going to cure whatever that device uh, is monitoring. And so there's some poorly designed and poorly implemented technology that's often coming from uh, individuals or groups that just don't quite understand patient care delivery or patient problems. So we always have to be mindful of that. Now, the digital care networks and all those types of entities, I, I think, are going to continue to uh, grow and expand. Uh, recently, um, come across um, a young family who, you know, they're just in their 30s. They've got two young kids under two, and both kids have been having recurrent earaches, and they wind up trying to get into the urgent care center or their pediatrician just to get reevaluated for another earache, and they knew what the answer was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. And they found uh, an online provider for like, you know, a very minimal amount of money on an annual subscription. And that's totally changed their behavior as young parents with two young kids. And so as soon as the kid starts getting cranky, they get into their online environment and you know, it doesn't cost them anything because they're on a subscription model. They get their antibiotics instantly and the kid's fine in less than 24 hours as opposed to the pain of going to that urgent care center. So the younger generations are much more oriented towards technology. They're very comfortable with technology and therefore as patients, they're going to have a demand and an expectation for care delivery to be occurring in those remote environments. And so I think there still very much is uh, opportunity to improve and refine uh, the digital care networks of different sorts, whether it's pediatricians or whether it's women's care or men's care or elder care. There's tons of opportunity there. And then, uh, yeah, it's not surprising that the uh, pandemic brought that increase in virtual care, but now it's tapered off a little bit. And a lot of hospitals and healthcare systems are kind of reevaluating their commitment to telehealth, telecare, um, but they're doing it not just on the technology side of it, but they're doing it on the reimbursement side of it. You know, in this country, we still have licensure problems across states, and we still have reimbursement issues in terms of what paid for and by whom uh, for telehealth and tele telecare. So I, I think then until, you know, the federal uh, government uh, sorts out some of the issues related to payment policy and licensure policy, you're going to still see a little bit of hesitancy on at the state level with the for-profit insurers, as well as for the healthcare systems themselves. Now, the last piece in all of this is that you obviously can't talk about technology without talking about the electronic health record, right? And we're far too many years in trying to find the electronic health records that work effectively. And as we've talked a few times uh, today, the wellness and burnout are being impacted by a whole variety of things. But for physicians, one of the biggest factors of contri contributing to burnout is the uh, electronic health records and the extra hours that are required to do effective documentation, the risk that goes along with documentation in an electronic health record, 
and the burden of trying to um, maintain these records. Uh, and, you know, we're, we still haven't quite gotten to the stage where the interaction of patients and physicians in an electronic record is effective and trusted. Now that can be, you know, the, the complex uh, computer-based systems. Uh, how do we incorporate text-based communications between physicians and patients uh, remains to be solved yet. And then there's social media interactions that are out there as well. So the electronic health record, I think, uh, yeah, there's some reasonable systems, but it doesn't make either the patients or the providers happy at this point in time. You know, as you're talking about the challenges that we face, and there are many, I'd like to hear your perspective on another one, and that's the generational differences between physicians and how that impacts leadership and communication. If you think about the three generations of physicians that are currently in the workforce, we've got baby boomers who were born before 1965, Generation X between 1965 and 1980, and Generation Y was born between 1981 and 2000. Generation Z are still in their medical education, but they'll soon be entering medical practice. And so we'll have four generations and they're the largest diversity ever working together in, in history. And their characteristics between the groups could not be any more diverse. There are many characteristics and, and general attitudes that make these generations different, but maybe one of the most noteworthy is the, their views about work-life balance. And you, you've got the older regime of physicians who work incredibly long hours, and uh, whereas the young physicians simply don't want to do that. And they're willing to be paid less to have more time to spend with their family. How are the needs between the generation, the different generations of practicing physicians different in your perspective? And how will that eventual exodus of boomer docs impact the physician workforce and the overall industry movement to value? Yeah, great question. If, uh, that 20 years ago, if someone brought up the topic of generational differences, none of us would know what we were talking about. It's what you're talking about, those old damn hippies kind of thing. So we're actually at a stronger advantage in this day and age because we do recognize significant generational differences and we actually respect them more than we did back when. Now, each generation has its own flavor. And, uh, you know, it's, it's oftentimes been said that uh, those who have the most wisdom in the room are usually over age 50. But uh, that doesn't mean those who are over age 50 should be the ones driving the processes of change. And I think we're, especially with the digital era that's evolved over the same period of time, what we're recognizing is that the uh, younger generations often provide uh, stronger levels of innovation, activity, and invention. So that, uh, I think, can benefit the healthcare industry in a variety of ways. There is an interesting paradox with that younger generation of innovators and entrepreneurs is um, oftentimes they're kind of burnt out by 35 or 40. And uh, so we, ha we have to recognize what that impact is going to be over time. Now, as it relates to healthcare, as it relates to physicians, one thing that we have noticed over time is that regardless of which generation you're at, the idealism and the altruism is a strong driving force. Those who enter healthcare and enter the medical profession really want to help others. And so that's the 
driving force of uh, what they're trying to get in terms of professional satisfaction. Now, how they achieve that and the work-life balance uh, that they are wanting in there, I think we're going to see an ongoing recognition that work-life balance is important for everybody. But uh, as we're already seeing within the pandemic's effects, the I saw some number the other day, the largest percentage of people that have gone back to work in the office is still only about 48% in, and I think it was in the DC area. So there's a, there's a societal shift that's occurring here as well, where people want to work and live in different ways compared to the pre-pandemic era. So we have to think through not only the generational differences, but we also need to think through how is it that patients want to live their lives? When do they want to be seen by a medical provider? And uh, when do the medical providers themselves want to be uh, working? Do they want to be working evenings only? Do they want to work four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon, four hours in the um, middle of the night, et cetera? So there's some tremendous shifts going on all around. And as I said at the beginning, you know, it's good that we recognize these generational shifts are present. There are a lot of things that the younger generations can learn from the older generations. And equally so, I think that the older generations, at least the, the ones that I keep coming across, are much more open-minded these days to learning from the younger generations and uh, recognizing that, you know, hey, there's lots of good ideas that these younger people have. You know, I'm in that older generation group and I'm a surgeon by background. And, you know, when I was doing my training, we had this, uh, what you would now consider perverse attitude uh, in surgery training. We were oftentimes doing uh, one and two or every other night call. And the uh, catchphrase at the time was, well, if you're doing one and two or every other night call, you're missing half the action. And um, that's just, you know, a perverse thought process. And uh, so it's, it's great that it's changed and that the older generations are recognizing that uh, work-life balance is, is much, much better and certainly essential and can help contribute to individuals uh, managing their altruism, not getting worn out, not getting burnt out because their expectations for providing high quality care are being compromised. So, so I think it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. Well, I'd love to stay on this topic of uh, thinking about the future of medicine with the younger generation of physicians. And you were discussing earlier, Dr. Ann Good, the reforms that need to be made in medical training to integrate a uh, curriculum based on the tenets of population health, health equity, value-based care. As our regular listeners know, I mean, we're tireless advocates for population health and all the systemic changes that need to be made to achieve a more equitable-based healthcare system. And, you know, we believe the key enabler for the future of the industry is going to be workforce readiness to deliver on the promise of value-based care. I mean, we're going to have to uh, figure out how to build a workforce development 
uh, capability in the industry where we can remobilize and upskill healthcare providers and get them oriented around population health interventions to improve societal outcomes and reduce inequities and the scale and impact of workforce skill and knowledge. I mean, it's either going to be a force multiplier or an impedance for change. And, and with that, we're going to need substantive changes to medical education. You know, personally, uh, you know, I'm inspired by uh, uh, what Dell Medical School is doing in Austin. Uh, you know, this is the first medical school that's been uh, launched at a tier one research university in 50 years. And they're very intentional about through their value institute and, and their, their medical school, making sure that value-based care is in the minds of the physicians, you know, patient-centered care delivery, looking at the best technologies and, and you know, the merging that curriculum with this younger perspective and mindset around embracing technology. I mean, we're, we're talking about a, an, an era of physicians that never lived without an iPhone in their hands, you know, from their, from when they were an infant. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd love to get your take on, you know, what changes you see forthcoming in medical education and how that's going to create a, a remobilization of uh, the physician workforce around some of these tenants around population health and equity and and where potentially that can take us. And then also what some of the challenges might be in some of these old legacy incumbent higher educational institutions and getting them to evolve towards this uh, more idealized uh, model of care. The majority of the population doesn't spend their time thinking about health. They think about the healthcare industry when they get sick. And that's unfortunately where our focus still is. Um, so you're absolutely right. Some of the training centers, medical schools, residency programs are beginning to move towards educating the trainees on the complexities of population health, social determinants of health, and how do we move in a more public health oriented way to try to improve the general health and well-being of the population and of our society. But we also still have to educate the trainees on diseases and how do we manage disease? How do we recognize them? What's the best treatment plans for them, et cetera? Um, so, you know, places like the Dell University that you mentioned, um, others like Kaiser and a few other, you know, recently open medical schools are trying to take on these tactics in different sorts of ways, but it's still fairly untested outcomes at this point in time. Um, hopefully the trend will uh, capture other more state and conservative institutions, and they'll at least begin to experiment with some of these uh, types of initiatives in their own curricula but I think we're probably a decade away from seeing some positive outcomes enough to make a general shift in uh, the medical school trainees and the residency programs overall. Now, coupled with that, who goes into the medical profession? You know, we're still woefully inadequate in terms of its diversity. We've reached equity finally with uh, gender equality. Uh, in terms of numbers, we haven't reached gender equality in terms of compensation and payment, but we are very badly underrepresented in terms of other ethnic background uh, individuals going into the medical profession, whether it's Native American, Black, Hispanic, Asian, et cetera. 
we need more of those individuals coming into the workforce in order to provide better care for the uh, population as a whole and to be able to provide that care in a way that's both focused on wellness of the society, but also on how to manage and treat the illnesses that show up. So there's, there's work to be done there. I think some of the oversight agencies related to education, whether it's the National Board of Medical Examiners, whether it's the American Association of Medical Colleges or the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, they're all aware of these issues as well. It's how do those oversight agencies help their constituents move along to better improve the approaches to population health, social determinants of health, and how do we do that in contemporary ways that are able to modify curricula strategies, implement technology solutions, and then continue to evolve at the same pace. One of the things that I've often said is the pace of change in the clinical delivery systems is far faster than the pace of change in the medical education systems. And the sooner we can get the paces of change going simultaneously and similarly, the better off we'll be in the end. Dr. Angud, I thought uh, a great way to wrap up our conversation with today would be to ask you to share your insights. You know, you, you mentioned wisdom and knowledge. You've, you've got years of experience that you've gained in, in practice. And, and as the CEO and president of the American Association for Physician Leadership, or AAPL, I'd be interested to have you talk more to our listeners about AAPL and what are the resources and tools that it has available to help physicians to improve their leadership effectiveness? And I'm definitely interested in hearing about the, the resources and tools AAPL has to offer physician leaders. Sure. Thank you. Um, you know, well, first, I've been very privileged in my own career, and um, I, I started out in clinical surgery academics and then made a few other shifts and it's just been a, a real privilege to look after this organization for the last decade or so and i think one of the lessons in that for any of your listeners is to be open-minded to change your career so that you're happier and you're more satisfied in what you're trying to accomplish overall not just for you personally but for your family but for ways in which you can contribute change to the industry that we all care so much about. Did I ever think I'd be running a professional association when I was first starting out? Absolutely not. was never in my mind. But be open-minded. Be open-minded. Now, AAPL is a terrific resource. It's been around for nearly 50 years. We have a whole array of information resources that is... Um, Competency-based education, we've got, uh, again, about 80, 85 different courses. And then, obviously, we have a whole technology platform of our own to run all of this. But we have a whole variety of other resources as well. So thank you for asking. Well, Dr. Angud, thank you for joining us this week on The Race to Value. It's been a fun conversation, and I've learned a lot. And I appreciate your leadership and your support of physician leaders out there that are truly making a difference. Well, great. Thank you for the conversation as well. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, you guys are doing some good work, so keep it up. <laughs>